Hey everyone, I'm Sina Hageha and welcome to First Serve. The path to live a fulfilled and abundant life is to learn, grow and serve and that is what this podcast is all about. We'll have guests on the show who are utilising their skills to make a positive impact to our world. Together we can gain a lot of insights, expand our knowledge and apply our learnings to serve others to the best of our abilities. We have come to the end of season one and we've had some amazing guests on the show who have given us an insight into how they are serving the world through their passions. In this episode, we'll go through some of the highlights of First Serve since launching in August 2020. We kicked off this podcast with Richard Mullender, a former hostage negotiator, on the importance of listening. A lot of the times we're listening to reply rather than listening to understand. Why is listening so important? Why should we all seek to become better listeners? Oh, I think without doubt, it's the core of all communication. There's nothing else. Everything else depends on good listening. If you want to have a brave conversation, a fearless conversation, if you want to have an awkward conversation, if you want to do a negotiation, if you want to do anything, the first thing you've got to do is understand the other person and you'll never understand that other person by talking at them. You can only ever do it by listening. Listening is the core of everything. And as you know, and as, as we've discussed and when you went on the course, most people have no idea how to listen. And that's why I think it's such a thing that we should be teaching everybody to listen properly, to really listen to the other person. Yeah, for sure. There's a quote by Stephen Covey in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he talks about as humans, we tend to listen to reply instead of listening to understand. Absolutely. And, and most of the time we're listening to the words and we're not really listening for the meaning. The words and the tone of voice put together give us the meaning of what's really going on behind. I mentioned that we live in a world where we emphasise talking over listening and that our lack of listening skills is not serving others who need to be listened to. Also, we tend to jump into solution mode based on our own experiences. There's a lot of people who are in pain or they have anxiety or depression and I think society tells us that we need to speak up when we have these problems whereas if we were better at extracting this information from people we'd be able to help people in a better way and sometimes maybe people have reached out but because we haven't listened to understand that we don't dive any deeper and I think having these skills can actually help society in a massive way. A lot of times is what happens is someone's got pain or they're having difficulty and we come up with solutions um, because we've dealt with that pain before or we've dealt with that, you know, difficulty before. And then we, we immediately say, well, you should do this. But the reality is that they're not you. They're not me. I, I can't tell you what to do. I have to listen really carefully to why it's having that particular impact on you. Then having understood that, then and only then can I really start to come up with a solution with you. And most of the time, the solution will come from you, providing I listen for it. And sometimes it needs a bit of a tweak, and sometimes you maybe you don't want to do that, maybe you want to do this. But most of the time, the solution is there. People never come to you with a problem that they haven't thought about solving. If your computer goes wrong, you don't go straight to the mechanic and say, tell me what's wrong with my computer. You switch it on and you switch it off in the hope that it fixes itself. Everybody tries to solve a problem first and then they go, look, but you've, got to, you've got to listen to them. You've got to listen to them. I dive deeper into our uniqueness and how as humans we can be irrational too. 
depending on the situation and our state of mind. Therefore, we need to have this awareness to understand people better. Another thing I want to ask you is, as humans, we're quite irrational, especially in anger. So we tend to become quite stupid when we're angry. And you've probably dealt with a lot of those situations. And, and we have cognitive biases. So each individual is slightly different. How do you deal with that? You have to accept, you're absolutely right. The point you make is absolutely right. Every individual is different. This idea that you can walk in somebody else's shoes is, is another thing that I think is just badly misunderstood. To be able to understand somebody, to be able to walk in somebody's shoes, then you've got to, you don't walk in someone's shoes. You can't walk in their shoes. You have to listen to understand why this particular thing is having this particular impact on people. Okay, let's have a look at COVID again. Go back to COVID-19 and you're saying, What's happening now is some people are finding themselves at home and they're loving it, or they may not be loving it as much as they would, but they're having a great time because they're kind of getting lots of things to do, sorting out the house, blah, 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 blah. Other people are sitting there thinking, oh, God, you know, I'm on my own. I'm terrified. So it's exactly the same situation, but look at the difference of the impact. And you've got to understand why this is having that impact on that person. Because if you're the person that's having a good time, you say, what's the matter with you having a good time? Do this, do that, do this, do that. And, and you're kind of doing the best you can, but actually you've got no idea what it's like for that person. So every single person is unique. Every single person is unique. You need to understand that person, no one else, that person. And you only ever understand that person if you listen to what they tell you. I wanted to know from Richard what makes a good negotiator. As we are constantly in negotiations each day ourselves, and we may not know it, negotiations with our managers, colleagues and partners. Every time someone says I want or I need to you, you're in a negotiation. So it's an important skill to master otherwise you'll be taken advantage of. Now in Richard's situation, there is a lot more at risk during these negotiations. So what makes a good negotiator? Well, first and foremost, you've got to be fairly resilient. You, you've got to be prepared to really, you know, there's this thing about, you know, um, don't criticise the man that stands in the arena. You know, the critic sits on the outside looking in, but the man stands in the arena or the, or the person, the woman, stands in the arena and takes part. And I think with hostage negotiators, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot at stake and, and it's emotionally quite draining, you know, and it's, especially if you lose somebody, you know, then, it, then it's even more draining. But... So I think first and foremost, you've got to be fairly resilient. Then you have to be able to be a good listener. You've got to be able to listen because the people you're dealing with, you, often you don't like them and, and, and you certainly don't agree with what they're doing. But you can't afford to let that emotion come out in your voice. You know, you can't afford to because a lot of the time, especially in hostage situations, all you've got is your voice or so, or so of all you've got to use. You listen with your ears and you, you've got to make that voice reasonable. You know, so um, and then mental agility, I think, is the other one. You've got to be fast because you don't have a lot of time to respond and they, they don't give you any time to respond. So you've got to be mentally agile. So a good listener, mentally agile and resilient, you know, be prepared to be abused because you're going to be abused. What can we all start doing from today to become better listeners? Oh, enjoy yourself. First and foremost, people are funny. People are great. Uh, no, I love people. I mean, it's so, there's such good fun to be around. I mean, I miss 
being around people, just enjoying them and, and seeing them doing crazy things. They're fabulous. So first and foremost, just enjoy people. Uh, listen, you know, if the taxi driver wants to talk to you, just talk to the taxi driver. What's the big deal? You know, let them talk to you. Have a listen to them. Just work them out. Um, if if you're, someone's on their mobile in the phone, oh, well, so what? Listen to their conversation. If they're talking loud enough for me to hear... I'm only polite enough to listen to it. Don't get upset by people. Enjoy them. You know, and the more you enjoy them, the more you see the incredible um, variety of people that are out there. And then you just work them out as you go along. So you practice. Talk to the cashiers in the blooming supermarket. You know, just get to like people. Talk to the waiters in a restaurant. Just get them chatting. Find out about them. My one tip to everybody is this. Be interested, not interesting. And that was episode one, Listen Like a Hostage Negotiator with Richard Mullender. We should seek to understand people rather than simply reply. We were given two ears for a reason. Everyone has their unique stories. Try to explore them by asking good open questions. Then we had Dr. Hamid Hashemi on the show, who has been serving on the front line during the COVID-19 pandemic. When we had this chat, it seemed like the situation was improving. However, now we can see that it's not close to being over yet. This episode was recorded back in June 2020. So we talk about how we can learn from it and what we can do. There's the notion of being reactive or proactive to, to consider. So what we've been doing over the past well, three or four months is being reactive, scrambling to try and get PPE, scrambling to you know close borders, still restrictions, scrambling to try and get some sort of research underway so that we can understand what we can do to, to fight this virus. But what about being proactive? And that's where we need to start listening to experts i think the issue is when it comes to prevention that no one really wants to spend money on something that might not have a return on investment and i've seen that the example is in healthcare i've seen it in other industries as well Mm. but when you want to spend money you need to have a good business case and i know for example with this pandemic there's an obvious business case but i think as humans we tend not to invest in things that might not pay off and yeah. i think that's a that's a behavior we need to change as a society to to deal with things like this in a better fashion yeah it's not sexy is it no invest investing in uh you know investing hundreds of millions of pounds in research and the viral prevention Hmm. isn't isn't particularly sexy hmm. and, and, and if you do it really well you don't you reduce the number of outbreaks you get so you don't ever actually end up seeing those hordes of unwell people which yeah. can sometimes then as you said can sometimes be like well what, what the hell are we investing covid19 has had the most impact on those who are lonely obese or have vitamin d deficiencies but we don't hear anything being mentioned on how we can improve those areas what I've not really seen being emphasized too much in the media is how to boost our immune systems, how to have 
better hygiene, better nutrition, prioritize sleep, vitamins, nutrients. I think that's missing, that education is missing and that could actually go a long way in terms of prevention. Yeah. I mean, whether I'm not sure this is necessarily specific advice to trying to fight off something like COVID-19, but generally when we talk about our health, there's been, there are kind of cornerstones of medical advice that we always kind of go to. There's things that we talk about, like not smoking, not drinking. Everyone will have a different perspective on the current situation, but we cannot ignore the fact that loneliness is a killer and with restrictions and isolations in place, the impact is severe. People react differently, right? So for me, this has been a period of solitude. And I think solitude gives you the opportunity to explore things that you couldn't before, go to areas that you didn't go to before and really have time to reflect on things. Yeah. But I think there's a fine line between solitude and loneliness. Mm. In both situations, you're alone, but you make a choice to be in solitude. But when it comes to loneliness, it's not a choice. No one chooses to be lonely. And I think that's the difference between the two where some people are using this period to to thrive in this moment, whereas some people are probably struggling. And I actually think that fear and loneliness are the bigger pandemics that we have out there in society. I mean, loneliness increases the risk of mortality. It also increases the risk to mental and physical health. And I'm not trying to downplay this coronavirus pandemic, but I feel that it has uncovered other pandemics that we have out there, which does a lot of damage to society. I think that's been something that's been really underestimated, actually, in what's been going on, is the level of kind of mental health issues that have been precipitated as a result of it. You're absolutely right in that. It's, It's just like, whilst all the kind of viral cases were coming in, in like March and April time, the main other thing that was coming in were people with mental health issues as a result of everything that's been going on. Now, that is another thing that I think we really kind of underestimated the impact of, and we have underestimated the impact of, is the, is the psychological impact of something like this. Even just the impact of the measures that were implemented. But when you start to consider the longer term impact of things like you know, job losses, the financial implications mm-hmm. of things on individuals and you know small business owners they're pretty significant we're, we're, we're getting better as a country at looking at our mental health without that kind of taboo stereotyped uh, perspective which I think is brilliant it's, it's something that has always been kind of brushed under under the carpet particularly with men like it's, it's awful seeing what what some men go through and obviously women as well but particularly men are bad at it and i hope that uh, i I encourage to hear what you're saying but i hope people have used this period as an opportunity for Mm self-reflection because the degree of things being taken out of your control which people don't like i certainly don't like that i like to have a degree of control of what's going on Things have been wildly out of control <laughs> for the past few months. But I hope people have used this, opp- this, this month as 
these past few months as an opportunity for personal growth to sit mm-hmm. and look, even if you're not necessarily going out to work or you're not able to go and see your friends and family, but use it as an opportunity to understand the importance of friends and family in your life. You, you and I are lucky, man, that we come from a, we're in a big family, right? We've got like all manner of cousins all over the place and we're, we're a close unit. And I'd like to think that we didn't take our family for granted, but I've, but I've done a lot of thinking over the past few months and, and think and thought, actually, maybe I did. Like all the gatherings that we've had where there's like, you know, so many of us all together getting to chill out. You know, we, we're never going to, we're not going to be able to do that for a while, whether it be like 15 no. or 20 of us in the same house, all of the same <laughs> on top of each other. That's, it's going to be a while before we're able to do something like that. And it's given me an appreciation that, you know, my family and my other, 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 the backbone of my of my life they, mm. they kind of give you the reason they give you the support they drag you through when you when you need to be dragged through and stand you up when you need to be stood up i hope there's you know a good proportion of your listeners and, and members of the public not only in the uk but just across the world i hope people have used it as an opportunity to reflect on their life reflect on society and use it as an opportunity for betterment not yeah. not as an opportunity for, for detriment because the, the virus does does that anyway the virus does mm-hmm. that anyway but let's fight it by trying to better ourselves as individuals and as a society and i i reckon i don't know about you man but i i think that has happened i think society has pulled together i think society has become a kinder place i think society has become a, a more loving place and a more appreciating place i believe in human beings and i think we will see we'll see those changes carried forward even as the restrictions are lifted i think we'll see that carried forward something i've been doing a lot this year has been journaling and expressing gratitude it has been a game changer for my mindset and the way i show up each day i highly recommend this if you don't do so already it will change your outlook on life yeah for sure i've definitely expressed more gratitude towards this period i started journaling throughout this period as well i express three things i'm grateful for in the morning and three things at night and you'd be surprised that the number of things that i probably wouldn't have been grateful for in the past yeah the the little things like going to the barbers to get a haircut you've seen the <laughs> state of my hair at the moment i'm in desperate need of a haircut but Tarzan. it's things like that that you you took for granted before yeah. yeah and like you mentioned friends family yeah it's just those little things that you realize what you had before this pandemic mm. was so good <laughs> yeah 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 but that, that's what i mean i think I think it's been an opportunity for us as, as as a species to kind of look and think, you know, things were okay before. There were, the, you know, we had problems, but you were still able to go and see your family and your friends. I mean, that's been such an impact for people. And I hope it gives us a bit more of an appreci- appreciation to look at ourselves and say, all right, look, let's try and, let's try and make this world a better, a better place. One key learning is that as long as we stick together as a community, we can get through adversity, although it has been difficult with restrictions in place. I know last time we talked, you'd mentioned the grant study from Harvard University. I think you're right that we're 
social creatures and we do need to be around each other yeah to live a fulfilled life yeah definitely so i, d- I don't know how many of your listeners are going to be familiar with the grant study but basically it's a really fascinating thing and I'd, I'd recommend anybody to go and read a bit more about it but harvard medical school have for the past 80 odd years been doing this really really fascinating study looking at a number of things but the thing that really intrigued me was happiness how do you lead a happy life and i mean that's that's the question it's been the question of of you know many generations is how what is it to lead a happy life what is it to lead you know a fulfilled life you know the, is it is it money is it is it holidays is it experiences like what like what is it what is it but what we've seen from this grant study which i think is so intriguing is when you take into account all these other variables whether if you really want to drive a ferrari whether you drive that ferrari or whether you drive a fiat punto what really makes you happy is having meaningful relationships with other mm. people be that friends or family but having meaningful relationships with other people that gives you happiness and that really harks to the human being's sense of community and it's that strong mm. is that there are all these other forces in the world but the one thing that really makes us happy is the sense of community and i I think it's going to take a lot more than a virus and I think it's taking something much stronger than this to try and even get closer at breaking that spirit. That was Dr. Hamid Hashemi from the episode COVID-19 serving on the front line. Check out the full episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Our next guest was Luke Russ, who talked about the transition to sustainable mobility, covering the emergence of electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, along with their challenges and benefits. I'd mentioned that I wasn't aware of how close things were to where I lived in London, and that I could actually walk to places rather than getting public transport. London's a classic case of popping up in different parts of the city and never realising how connected they all are on foot and overground, right? Um, and so what we're trying to do is, is help cities understand how they can more efficiently move people around because we don't all have perfect knowledge of transportation systems and what the best route for us to go is or the best mode of transport. So we often do what we've always done, right? So we're, we're trying to help cities and, and fleet operators develop the services, whether that be electric or autonomous or you know even more rudimentary train services or, or whatever it is that can give people that choice to, to move in a more sustainable manner, but is also right for those those people as well. I then asked Luke about his research into autonomous vehicles and his key findings. The key findings from, from that research was that we, we need to engage more with it. I think, um, you know, the, the, the technology is happening and it's being developed um, and it's going to come probably quicker than quite a few of us think, although, you know, a lot of the, the projections for, for this sort of technology have been pushed back quite significantly. The the key thing for me from a climate point of view was that we need to start, um, policymakers need to start engaging with the private sector on this um, topic pretty soon, because if we don't manage the um, operation of autonomous vehicle services, it could have some pretty negative effects on climate 
as well as congestion, as well as other negative effects in cities. You know, if we allow them to travel around freely when they're empty, and we allow them to go and refuel way out um, in the sticks away from the city centre, you're actually increasing the, the the kilometers that vehicles are traveling within our cities. So, yeah, I think it's actually, you know, I did that work maybe five, six years ago, and there's been a real shift in the way that cities and the private sector are collaborating and, and discussing these sort of things. And actually, the UK is one of the world leaders in developing policy for the deployment of autonomous vehicles, which is great. A question I have and a question that most of our listeners may have on their minds as well is how far away are we from autonomous vehicles because i keep hearing different projections how far are we really from me ordering a car to drive itself without a driver to pick me up and take me to wherever i want to go yeah yeah and there's you know there's a few phases to it i think we're we've been working on some programs in london where you know as a trial that can become a reality quite soon as a full-blown, uh, publicly available commercial service, that's a different challenge. So, you know, I think we're still 10 years away from that being a reality. I think there's a lot of yeah. barriers to, to that being a, a viable opportunity at the minute. But, you know, beyond 2030, I fully believe the technology is going to be ready. Regulation will be will be in place to to enable it, but also... The, the wider public will have had the the time to engage with this sort of technology and capability and actually be demanding for it. So I think, you know, probably working to a 10-year horizon. Mm. There'll be some small-scale deployments and, and applications of the tech that make a lot of sense. You know, if we look at university campuses or if we look at airports, you know, other sort of gated communities, they make really good sense for uh, trial number one for, the you know, the commercial use case of this tech. But actually, being out on the on the roads and in in mixed fleets with driven cars or human driven cars, that's a, a different challenge that we're probably ten years away from. So it seems like we are ten years away from autonomous vehicles roaming our streets. Then I asked about whether our current climate is well suited for the adoption of electric vehicles. So I just want to touch upon the current climate we have and the energy transition going on. So a shift towards cleaner energy, renewables. We have car ownership decreasing. We have hydrocarbon demand decreasing. We have renewable energy costs decreasing. So what do you think of this climate? Do you think it's set up for the shift towards electric vehicles? Yeah, for sure. Hey, look, I think the transition was happening and it has been happening for a few years. I think the impact of COVID-19 around the world is actually only going to accelerate it. You know, we've seen the oil markets in turmoil around the world and a, you know, a real challenge for, for those players and how they now evolve their, their business strategy. And we've seen BP make some pretty significant moves over the last couple of weeks. And so I, you know, I truly believe that this, the future that we're trying to move towards, which as you say, is potentially not even owning a car, um, use of renewable energy, um, actually potentially being self-sustaining in, in people's homes, having solar on the roof with an electric car that they can charge and, push push back into the grid and actually make money on these assets at some point so you know i think it's all accelerating um and yeah i i really do believe a lot of this is going to happen a lot faster than, than people think there is energy is uh very very complex and actually can we get the grid um you know trying to get the national grid 
to be future-proofed for the decentralization of, of energy is a massive, massive task, which we're sort of, you know, we've, we've historically been on, on track to. But as this accelerates, you know, I think there's, um, there are some big, big challenges that we need to uh, jump over as well. COVID-19 has drastically impacted transport with few people traveling due to the restrictions, which has resulted in lower carbon emissions. The restrictions have been good for the climate, but what can we do to maintain this going forward? Now, just touching on the impact of COVID, we've seen carbon emissions drastically reduced. I've seen a lot of before and after pictures of the skylines of some cities. And it's just been amazing to see how the images have changed. Much cleaner air, cleaner water, the biggest drop in greenhouse gas emissions ever reported. I'm sure you're over the moon with these results. So should we encourage or enforce lockdowns more regularly? Interesting. And, and like you say, it's amazing to see what the world's done in response to us uh, changing the, the daily habits of, of people around the world. And hopefully people see those images and say, yeah, that's the world we want to live in, right? We've noticed it here in Australia. It's, it's been amazing weather for a couple of months now. And, you know, the skies have been clear, the waters have been clear, and it's just been amazing. So I hope people take this opportunity to, to change the way. I think they will, actually. I do think they will. Whether that's going to be dependent on more lockdowns, I don't think so. I really think we have to – there will be some policy that probably needs to come in place around – you know, whether it supports remote work or whether it's just caps on the way we travel into cities and actually wider mobility as well. You know, I think we've seen the congestion charge be raised in London, partly because there's a massive hole in TfL budgets now because no one's been using uh, public transport. But, you know, them doing that seven days a week at an additional cost will change people's behavior in terms of the way they drive uh, into to London. So, you know, I think we're going to see more schemes like that become commonplace in cities because, because transportation is such a big polluter and a big challenge for urban air quality. So, look, I really hope this is the catalyst to change a lot of the problems that we've had in our cities. The social unrest of putting people into lockdown regularly, I think, is, is a, a counter argument for, for that. So regular lockdowns may not be the answer, even though it has benefited our climate. I've certainly not enjoyed them. But we need to look at our own behaviours and the way organisations are set up to support more remote working. Elon Musk has been a pioneer in the electric vehicle space with Tesla and has paved the way for our car manufacturers to follow. I asked Luke about his Tesla experience. And I saw the other day you actually drove a tesla how i was did that? yeah first time loved it that is like nothing i've ever driven before i sat in it and said hey mate how do i turn this thing on and he goes it's already on it's just you know so quiet <laughs> so different and um yeah it had uh self-driving capabilities as well so just uh, as we took it out we did engage self-drive for maybe 10 15 seconds which is pretty surreal as well just watching the vehicle navigate the city so yeah it it's very cool. It's a bit of a rocket ship. And I think people do, I can see a few people being scared once they get into something like that, because it is quite a different experience to what they're used to. But like with many things, once you've, once you've tried it and you understand it, then, you know, it's, it should change the way people think about getting themselves around. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I've heard when people try electric vehicles, that's when they really get hooked onto it. Yeah, that's right. And, and like they don't, they won't go back to a conventional vehicle once you've, no, you've because, tried it. And they're fun to drive as well. You know, the the power of an electric vehicle is not like the sort of lag you get when you push the accelerator on a on a conventional vehicle, right? So you push the accelerator on a Tesla and it just goes. It's like a Sky Electrics. So, you know, once people understand that it's it's also fun to drive, it's super, super safe. And actually the, the Model X that we drove can have six or seven people in that as well. So, you know, it's a proper family car, but it drives like a something you'd want to take around the track. Um, yeah, look, I, I, and once people get over the, the psychology of, so we're going to have to charge this every 200Ks, actually how often are you traveling further than 200Ks? You know, not very. So there's some psychological barriers, but you're, you're right. If we can get more people trialing them, I think the that, um, the uptake will will accelerate quite quickly. Okay, so we've touched on electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, renewable energy. But what I really want to know is, what is your vision for the future? What do you want to see? Easy question. <laughs> well, you know, I think for me, the, the key thing is about giving people a better way of life like it sounds silly but i think we can be we can be sustainable i think we've got the technology engineering capability the people in the world now to make us all be able to live really good lives that are increasingly more sustainable and so you know i think there's a massive um challenge for urban mobility which you know is an area that i'm really interested in and and kind of focused on at the moment but yeah i think if we can actually give more people access to transportation than we currently have, give more people access to jobs, give more people access to leisure facilities and other things without the need to own vehicles, etc. whilst making sure that um, our energy systems and the vehicles that we're using are, are right for our environment and, and also our, our local uh, cities. You know, that's the kind of vision I think I have and it's super achievable as well. And what can we all start doing as individuals to help with this transition to help us as a society become more sustainable? Yeah, look, I think um, there's an initial bit of recognition of how we're uh, not necessarily traveling today and right now, but how we've historically been uh, using private transportation or um, high emitting vehicles in the world and just recognizing our own carbon footprint. I actually think there's a gap in society of uh, having real understanding of the impact that I'm having on on the world, uh, and once you've got that kind of initial recognition, I think you know you can start to to change your behaviour. I think behavior, and behavioural trends what we're trying to drive here, right? We want people to be travelling in, in slightly different ways, so we need people to be using better forms of transport. So I think one understanding the, the problems that you've been working with for, for many years. But then also start to look at what the different other solutions are that's coming through because there's so much innovation happening and so much really cool stuff. Like, you know, I remember when Uber first came out, like that became a cool thing to do. And actually Uber in, in many ways is is a, a more sustainable solution than, than private vehicle ownership. So, you know, we need more of these services to come through, but we need people to be able to engage with what's happening to then move in slightly different ways. But like I say, my I really don't believe we're going to change the behavior of everyone. But I think if we can start to offer people alternatives that don't necessarily need massive behavioral change, that's when we can start to drive the biggest, the biggest benefits to society.
That was Luke Russ from the episode Transforming How We Move. You can listen to the full episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our next guest was Jessica Dowdle. She shared with us a truly inspirational story around her dad's mental health and how she managed to foster change through positive energy. So last year, I think it was about 12, 18 months ago, my my, my dad was in just a a really bad place. He uh, broke up with his partner. He came off his medication. You know, he stopped doing the normal sanitary stuff. He wasn't as clean as he usually was. He's he's had depression for years. And um, he pretty much got to the point where he had no self-worth, no confidence. He even stopped like leaving the house and going going to the pub or going to do things. And he was just in a really, really bad place. Myself and my brother, we were really worried about him. And to the point where every time we would see him, it was always a worry about something happening and worrying that we weren't going to wake up with the dad anymore. And... When, when you see someone in so much pain and just no confidence and you just don't know what to do. And I I, I, was, I remember receiving an email and um, it started with, to my darling daughter. And if, if you know me, I'm, I'm a bit of a skim reader and... Um, and I read down and, and all I saw was sometimes I wonder if giving up the depression medication was a good thing. I don't think I was a- any stronger when I was on it. And he said, I, I read down a little bit further and it said, I can never thank you enough for what you've done for me. And then it said, my fondest love, dad. And I remember, I remember reading it. And when you when you when you leave your dad's house after he's been crying in your arms because of his depression and his loneliness and no self-worth, and he's given up his depression medication and he's unstable, I just completely crumbled. And he he was suicidal at the time. Like he told me he was suicidal. And I it was almost like a wake-up call because for both of us, really, because he was at the brink. And I was just so anxious about leaving him for five minutes because I wouldn't know what he would do. I I got to the point where I would leave the house and I would text him straight straight away and I'd be like, are you okay? Like, what's wrong? Like, is everything fine? And he'd be like, yes, I'm fine. And if he didn't reply for like an hour, I would start ringing him. And it was almost affecting me as, as much as it was affecting him. But obviously to watch someone in so much pain and, and having kind of the way I am in terms of nurturing others... I was just so worried all the time. Anyway, so that's the situation. And my dad, thankfully, didn't do anything at that point. And, and I'm so, so glad. And, but, but also it's, it's a scary thing because this does happen to others. You know, I've, I've seen so many stories and I'm just really, really thankful that I still have my dad here. But anyway that's the, that's my motivation because you know I nearly lost my dad and at that point we both realized something needed to change and that was a dad's story and you can see at that point he wasn't in a really good place but in order to make a change we need to start small and make incremental changes 
that are constantly evolving rather than setting fixed goals. You want to constantly make yourself better. You want to constantly work on yourself. You know what? You constantly want to improve your mental health. So by setting, you know, setting ambitious goals is, is really good. But actually, I think with this kind of illness, it's all about creating a really great plan with really small incremental steps, which can make a large impact quickly with your confidence over a long time. But it's not an end goal. It's a constantly evolving, constantly mm-hmm. changing end goal. So it's all about that kind of infinite game. Rather than it be a finite world with finite goals, it really, really is. You need to set something which is going to be ever-changing, ever-evolving, so that it becomes your normal to constantly evolve and it builds your confidence. With all change, we are always going to face some resistance. People don't like change, but if we start seeing some progress, we will slowly buy into it. So how did he react to some of the things that you were suggesting? Was it all coming from him or was it from yourself and your brother advising him to do certain things? Yeah, was he resistant to that or was he accepting that those would put him in a positive state of mind or was he not buying into it straight away? So I didn't want to come in with like a sergeant major attitude, like right let's go, like, let's go, I can see the end goal, let's go live. No, not at all. That is just not the approach. You cannot approach this kind of thing. You need to do it in a very, very soft way. That's what I'd recommend. It it can't be coming in and taking over like a whirlwind. It just, it will not work. It will scare people off and it will hurt the person you're trying to help. What I would say is, yes, a lot of resistance in every single aspect, but you keep prodding them with the energy stick and they will start, they will start to move. So one of the things we started with actually is um, something that gave him confidence. His confidence levels were so low, so incredibly low. So we were trying to find different hobbies and things that he can do that can build his confidence. His skills are in the plumbing trade and he would follow instructions of how to install things. So I'm thinking, what other things can you do? What what things can you read and then follow a step-by-step guide in order to build something or make something that can give you confidence? And when my dad first got divorced from my mum, he couldn't cook at all. And now you'll give Gordon Ramsay a a run for his money. (laughs) (laughs) And he found cooking was one of the the major things that gave him confidence. Being able to see something in a book and recreate that and taste something and having that gratification and saying, you did that and it tastes good. Well done. And just having that kind of that confidence and exerting that and tasting it and you can see it you can see it and you can taste it Mm -hmm. um it's something tangible that you can do to to build your confidence so hobbies is one of the biggest things find something that gives you confidence another thing was it was all about building self-worth and self-love 
you know, he, he never made time for himself. He worked all of his life. He didn't have any self-worth. He's still working on it, to be honest. And taking time to go and sit in the garden, go and pamper it, pampering himself, whenever that may be. I kept telling him, I said, Dad, I do self, self-care Sundays every Sunday, but I actually do that on the weekday as well. So, and I said, look, taking that time to look after yourself really, really does make a difference. It means you're setting aside time to look after yourself. So basically, I, I wasn't going to go and tell him to have a bubble bath every night. But he started to to finish work early and, and just going and sitting in the garden, just going and sitting in the sun, getting fresh air. And it really, really did make a difference. I then asked Jessica about her biggest learnings. One most important thing is unless people want to change, they won't. You can try and influence that, but try, try again, try harder, try a different way try everything you can and if you keep on trying and people still don't want to change then it might get to the point where you're you are wasting your energy so it's just being conscious of that I'm very thankful that my dad did want to change and he did want to make his life better which was which is fantastic so the second thing I'd probably say is sometimes we need to take sacrifices in our lives and be selfless and it's important to do that because there are people who are struggling and are less fortunate but also remembering that not to the don't be too selfless to the point of your own demise. Like I said, some, well, sometimes I'm I struggle with my mental health, and if I had a really really bad day at work or something's happened in my life which has been really stressful, and then I speak to my dad and he's having a really down day, it can really impact my own uh, my own energy and my my own mental health. So it, it's just being being kind of conscious and but still being very selfless in the way that you act. And I think the third thing is probably positive energy. I talk about positive energy all the time. Be a radiator, not a vampire. So positive energy fosters better mental health. Um, So I think changing, you know, unless people want to change, but try as hard as possible, being selfless and being a radiator, not a vampire and bringing that positive energy are probably my biggest learnings throughout the journey. And what advice would you give to to others who are struggling or need a bit of a lift so i would say talk to people it's so incredibly important to talk to people find a safe space a safe person gravitate towards them the people that can give you energy give you know go find those radiators and sit next to them go and talk to them about things because the more we talk the easier it becomes so that's one of my bits of advice. Find your passion. Keep trying things. Failing, it's okay. Um, if something gives you energy, self-worth, gratification, just go and do it. Go and enjoy it and build your energy and build your, your self-worth. That was Jessica Dowdle from the episode Serving Others Through Contagious Positivity. You can listen to the full episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. The next guest was actually myself from an interview I did with the Tech Allies Network on my experience as a young leader. We live in a world today that needs stronger leadership and those skills should be learned at an early age. However, people may doubt your leadership abilities based on your lack of experience. 
as they may simply look at your age. As a young manager, I think one of the things that is always in your, the back of your mind is, am I inexperienced? Am I too young to be in this role? And I think the word experience or inexperienced is sometimes not understood that well in this context, because I think in most cases, experience is seen as how many years has that person been working for? But my understanding is of experiences, what has that person gone through? What have they learned? What are the emotions they felt? What were the challenges and how did they overcome them? So when I think about as someone with 20 years experience doing the same thing for 20 years, the exact same position, same job task, is that person really experienced or are they just really skilled at that particular competency? So I, I don't really let it phase me when, when people think I'm inexperienced because of my age always think back to the reason why you were put in the, into the position and there's obviously people in the organization that believe in you and trust that you could do a good job in this role. Now building on the inexperienced limiting belief that people may have based on your age, you will feel some tension managing team members who are older than you. It just takes time to win them over. And for those people on the team that are the experienced people, perhaps those that are older, especially if you're a young manager that are coming in and you're managing people that are older than you, do you do, you do that in your, in your role? Yeah, I'm actually the youngest person in my team. Right, so, so how, how do you deal with that? What are the, I don't even know how, to, if I was going into that kind of role, I guess I'd feel really nervous about that kind of situation. It is tough dealing with people that are older than you because I think, they might have that expectation where they feel they, they want someone more experienced. But like I said before, you need to just remind yourself why you're here and what you can bring to the table. There's a reason why you are where you are. There's people that have faith in you. So just demonstrate those skills. And if the older team members are slightly skeptical about your abilities over time, you can manage to show why you're here and that you're here to help them and that you do have the right skills. So it's kind of like building up that trust. Yeah. It's, if, it, if it's a new team, they don't really know your history or your background. They don't know all the personal things you went through as well to build up those leadership attributes. So if someone's new to the team, they don't really see all those aspects. They just see, you know, a young guy still in his 20s. Like, what does this guy know about leading a team? But there's a lot of personal experiences that also build your leadership attributes that they don't necessarily know about until they get to know you better. So I think people shouldn't write people off just on, based on age. One of my biggest challenges was delegation, delegating work. I was a solo flyer before and used to think I could do it all on my own, which put a lot on my plate and impacted other activities. Delegating can free up your time to focus on the most important deliverables, whilst providing the opportunity for others to utilise their strengths or to pick up new skills. 
So are there any techniques that you use when you, you need to delegate work because you're a manager now and this was something that you were skilled at beforehand? Do you have any advice or anything that you'd say to somebody to try to help them to be able to delegate? What did you use? What do you use when you're trying to delegate work to a team member? This is a tough one. To be honest, delegation is one of the areas that I need to improve on. I feel when you're an individual performer, you don't really have much experience in delegating because you tend to be on the receiving end of it most of the time. You're not going around telling people to do certain things or delegating work to others. So I think when you make that transition, it's a completely new area to yourself. But one of the things I think helps with delegation is setting the expectations up front, what you expect from your team. Because when it then comes to delegating tasks to team members, it's not a surprise to them as to why you're delegating that work. They know exactly what that piece of work is for and how it contributes to the strategy or the bottom line. And there's certain challenges with delegation that I've learned over time. There's different scenarios for delegating. You might want to delegate because that person is really skilled at doing that certain activity. So you delegate it to that person. They can get the job done. Another scenario is that you want to delegate something to someone because it's a development area for them. So you want them to learn something from it. And another scenario could be that you actually want to put someone to the test and see whether they can do something, even if it's completely not within their area or their skill set. But there's different circumstances for applying these things. It all depends on the the urgency and the priority of the work. So if it's high priority and high urgency, you're most likely to delegate it to someone that has done that activity before or is really good at doing that. If it's lower priority, lower urgency, you might give someone time to just have a go and see how they feel about doing those things. We all have our own superpowers, our own unique skills and talents. We just need to unleash them to add value. We don't need to be an expert in a particular area. Play to your strengths. But what I think we need to focus on is your strengths. So we all have these core strengths that we bring to the table and the business knowledge will come along the way. So how can you apply those core strengths to help people, help someone, help a team and the business knowledge you'll pick up along the way. So I'll give you an example in my first role, I was working with geomatics and exploration and looking at well data and seismic data. I didn't have a clue about all of that stuff. Didn't know much about coordinates and coordinate reference systems and well deviation, and directional surveys. So what I had to do was think about what I can bring to the table. So when I'm speaking to those guys in the business, they all have a geoscience background. So how can I communicate to them? How can I add value to them? And you just need to look at your skills. So mine were, I'm quite analytical. I can provide solutions. I can improve processes by cutting inefficiencies and cutting costs. So would those skills be beneficial to them? I think, yes. 
So what I would do is sit down with those people in the business and ask them, what are your problems? What are your pain points? Let's walk through the process for this challenge that you're having. And let's map it out on a whiteboard and show me the pain points. Through that process mapping, I managed to learn a lot about what they do. And facilitating that discussion helps you learn as well. So asking why is this done a certain way? Why are we doing this before that? That in itself is a learning experience and it is disguised kind of. So you're learning, but you're also helping them at the same time. And it's challenging at first because you don't have that business knowledge and you can't speak their language. But once you get your foot in the door and you give a few examples and deliver some value, you then become known for that person that, you know, saved X amount or reduced the time of this process by X amount. Once you've got that and then you've built your like, business knowledge in the background, then you start to become seen as, you know, a person that can add value. So it does take time if you don't have that experience, but I feel that we all have a core set of skills that we can bring to the table, no matter what industry we're in. And the industry knowledge always comes down the line. With a lot of teams now working virtually, spread across different locations globally, building a high-performing team is a challenge. But what can we do to build that cohesion and environment for growth and high performance? And so, especially in that kind of scenario, but also more in general, how do you build a high-performing team? So to build a high-performing team, there's one book that I really like. It's called Drive by Daniel Pink. Don't know if you've come across that one. I have not. But yeah, it's one of my favorite books. He talks about three things to motivate us or three things that drives us. So the first one is autonomy. So allowing people to do things in the way that they like to do things, giving them that freedom to express themselves as long as they get the work done doesn't really matter how they do it. The second one is purpose. So your team members need to know exactly why they're doing what they're doing. I think a lot of the times people do work and they don't really know why they're doing it. So always relate back to the strategy and the vision of the company, the bottom line. What you're doing is contributing to X and this is why you're doing it. So they need to have a clear purpose. The third one is mastery. So mastery is about always seeking to improve, seeking to get better. You're never going to have all of the knowledge. And that's what it means by mastery is that you'll always get closer and closer to mastery, but you'll never get there. And if you have that mindset, it means that you need to keep learning and keep improving. You're never going to know it all. And if you have those three attributes, I think it motivates you and drives you to do well at work. So what I'm trying to do is incorporate some of those things at work and make sure that I provide them the purpose, mastery and autonomy. 
So I covered three areas to work on in order to build a high-performing team, but engagement is definitely the key focus area for me. So overall, is there one area of focus that you think a young manager who's in a similar situation or similar position as you, you've just come into a new role, you've been an individual performer, you're now a young manager managing people and managing an area of the business, what should you focus on first and foremost? I think for me, the most important thing is being present. So the most valuable thing you can give someone is your time. So put aside that time for your team. I know I've had previous managers where it's hard to catch them or you miss your one-to-ones or you miss your meetings with them and they haven't been around for you or to give feedback or to give you guidance and support. I think that's your number one priority as a leader is to be around for your team. That should be your number one priority. What you just heard there was from the episode We Are All Leaders, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Go check it out. We have come to the end of this episode and season. I appreciate all of the support over the past couple of months with this podcast. I want to thank all of my guests who have given up their time to share their stories and knowledge with us. I'm going to take a few months to work on some episodes for season two with more inspiring guests to really add the most value to you. I have a few ideas that I want to explore, but if you have any ideas of your own or feedback for future episodes, please do get in touch and I'll see what I can do. Take the time to reflect on 2020 and think about how you can integrate your learnings this year. And as Rumi says, you are not a drop in the ocean, you are the entire ocean in a drop. You have that overflowing greatness within you to unleash and serve to the world. But sometimes you need to serve yourself first in order to serve others. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe so you can get a notification when a new episode is released. Also share it with your friends and family or whoever you think would be interested in this episode. I would really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to reach out to myself, you can find me on Instagram. I'll leave the info in the show notes and I'll see you all in the next episode.